Hello, welcome back to the HP Lovecraft Book Club. Uh, in this episode, I'll be doing some, I guess, cleanup before I kind of uh, look at... Well, I'm really looking forward to the upcoming episodes. I'm, I, my three favorite Lovecraft stories are coming up, and they're all one after another. So it's going to be The Case of Charles Dexter Ward, The Color Out of Space, and The Dunwich Horror, which um, I think they're probably the stories that are top of viewer list too, but... Um, they're my top three. I don't know quite what order I'd put them in, but they all were, they all come out at the same, around the same time, or these are all written around the same time. Case of Charles Dexter Ward, of course, was published after he died. Uh, like Unknown Kadath, it was a <clears throat> posthumously published piece. But I'm looking forward to that. But before I kind of do that, and that's going to be like five, five, six, nine episodes, I guess, we'll to cover that, eight or nine, I'm not sure, uh, how long it'll take me to do Color Out of Space, but um, that's going to be a whole series, but there's some cleanup I have to do, and there's actually going to be uh, four stories or fragments or things I need to talk about. So first is uh, the history of the Necronomicon, uh, which was written around this time. It, was, it appeared, I think, in a letter that he wrote. Another thing that appeared in a letter, and I'll talk about in a whole separate episode, is the the very old folks, or, or I've been calling it the Roman dream. Uh, I kind of skipped over it uh, when I did the letter. Yeah, I think it was a letter to Donald Wandry that he penned this sh essentially short story, which is just a transcription of a dream. And, you know, it's just the Roman dream, or it's, it's people later, when it was published, called the very, the, the very old folk. Um, and I didn't talk about it really then, uh, I really wasn't ready to talk about it because uh, I was focusing more on the themes and the letters than than this short story that pops up in the letter. Um, but I need to do that. But that'll be a future episode. Uh, maybe after the Dunwich Horror, I'll come back and do that. Um, but I got the history of the Necronomicon. I also need to talk about a fragment called The Descendants, which uh, is basically a partial story. Maybe it was the first draft of something that Lovecraft didn't do. It does kind of hold together on its own. Unlike Azathoth, which was a previous fragment we looked at, which doesn't really go anywhere. It doesn't seem, all, all, you know, it's not even associated with Azathoth except the title that Lovecraft gave it. That seemed to have been a first draft of Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath. This one has more meat to it. Uh, and then Ibid, uh, which is a joke. It's a satirical essay, which is interesting. Uh, I'm not going to say too much about it. Uh, but I do think it's it's fun and academic. I think it's the kind of story that academics can appreciate a little bit. So anyways, uh, we'll do those three things, and I'll save the very old folks for, uh, or the, if you want to call it the Roman dream, for another another episode later. So start out with uh, the history of, of the Necronomicon. So this was not published as a standalone piece until 1938 um, as a little pamphlet. Um, by Rebel Press. Um, it was written in 1927, and it's mentioned in a letter. So it doesn't actually appear in a letter, but it's mentioned in a letter. I think I may have mentioned it in my series on the the, select, the second volume of the Selected Letters of Lovecraft, but I'm not sure. There's a lot in those letters, and I only could mention a fraction of what's all in there. Um, so that's the, the publication history of it. It's very short. It's only two pages long. Um, but it does show that Lovecraft was um, somewhat aware of the Muslim world. Not it doesn't show like erudition on Arabic philosophy and, and, and culture 
it shows some awareness of its history, some connection to its intellectual culture. I think, as a, you know, a historian looking at this can say, "Wow, Lovecraft was really in tuned with how much the Arab world and the Latin speaking world in the Middle Ages were in dialogue with one another." Because so much of this is about the translation, right, and the different translations of the Necronomicon in existence and where they are and how they ended up in different libraries and different versions. There's like a Greek version and a Latin version. And this is, of course, going to be fun in the stories when there's like a version in Miskatonic and there's another copy of it. Of course, these books were still written by hand, right? As far as I can tell, reading this, it was never printed, right? Because if it was printed, there'd be endless copies, right? So all we have are manuscripts under lock and key by the time we get to the modern technology of printing. Um, so, in a way, this is the history of the Necronomicon, but it's also the history of of why it's rare and why so few people know about it. Now, the joke, of course, when you read Lovecraft stories is that everyone knows about the Necronomicon and has read it or read parts of it. Like, even people who aren't in theology and history and that, like uh, the narrator of At the Mountains of Madness had read it. Um, the... The narrator in The Shadow of Time, I think, has read it too. So a lot of people read this, and they shouldn't be. So that's a bit of a contradiction. But when we first really meet the Necronomicon in a story, um, like the Dunwich Horror, uh, it's there, it's hinted in The Descendants too. It's it's something that's really secretive and hidden, right? In fact, the librarian, right, warns Widener, don't let this guy read it, you know, he's a weirdo. Um, so it's a lot about translation. We get a little chronology of it. Um, so it's published... Obviously, this is a fictional book um, that Lovecraft invented, you know. But I, I was one of those people who sort of believed when I was young, when I was like eight or nine, and friends were talking about dark stuff. You know, the Necronomicon was kind of a real book. I don't know. Um, but anyways, published as Al Azif just means nocturnal sounds. So basically, that means of, of the night or of night sounds. Um, basically, the Halloween of Demons was pulled. Uh, when's it composed? Well, the mad Arab Abdul Hazarad, of course, the mad poet of, of Sanya uh, in Yemen. Um, so I don't know much about Yemen in the Umayyad Caliph period. That's when it was written. So it's around 700 AD. So we're talking, what, 70 years after the revelation of the prophet? Uh, not that Islam plays a major role in this, but it's notable that it is a. It's not apparently not written by a Muslim. I don't see the evidence here that he's a Muslim, but he is uh, an Arab of the early Muslim empire. Um, he's too heterodox, I think, to be a Muslim. But if you study like the philosophy of the Islamic world, you know, it's uh, there's a lot of diverse ideas there. So there was a lot of openness to diversity within the Muslim tradition uh, throughout its history. But written around 700. Uh, now, this guy, Abdullah Azarhad, although born in Yemen, has traveled all over. In fact, we know some of the places he traveled from earlier stories. Like the first, not mention of the Necronomicon, but the first mention of that quote, that uh, a quote that would later be attributed to the Necronomicon is in The Nameless City, which is about someone investigating a city in like the Sahara. Right? And we're told he goes there. Uh he spent 10 years alone in the great southern desert of Arabia, the Roba el Khalilia, or empty space of the ancients, and Dana, or crimson deserts of the modern Arabs, which is held 
um, to be inhabited by protective evil spirits and monsters of death. So this is where he gets some of this stuff from. Um, and apparently the nameless city is, is, is referenced here. No, it's on the next, it's, it's a little bit later. Um, quote, of the madness he told many things. He claimed to have seen fabulous Aram, or city of pillars, and had found beneath the ruins of a certain nameless desert town the shocking annals and secrets of a race older than mankind. Um, so that's the that's exactly what happens in the nameless city. Now we're told here specifically he wasn't really a serious Muslim. He was an indifferent Muslim. Um, but given his age, he or his he must have been fairly old when he wrote it. So he must have been around at the time of Muhammad. So he would have had to have been a convert. Uh, maybe his father. I'm not sure. Um, but he doesn't seem to live much past writing this. He dies, uh, disappears in 738. We don't get an age for him when he dies. So my, my guess is, just knowing the timeline of the, of the early Islam, that he would have, his father would have been a convert when he was quite young, if he's going to be a Muslim, or he would have had to convert himself. Um, but he, we're told here he's an indifferent Muslim. Worshipping Yaxathoth and Cthulhu. Around. Of course, Yaxathoth's connection to the Necronomicon was well established in the Dunwich Horror. Um, Cthulhu, it's sort of mentioned there too, more subtly, but uh, in the stories. But Yaxathoth and the Necronomicon, the spells, it's there in uh, certainly the case of Charles Dexter Ward and Dunwich. So the other, that's the first paragraph, is about the writing of it. The second paragraph gets into the translations, which I think is the interesting part, because we know that the Muslim world was awash with translations. It, there was a translation boom, like the Greek to Arab translation movement. You had the Baghdad Peripatetics, who really did a lot of translation of Greek. So Aristotle, everyone, not everyone, I guess not everyone, but philosophers in the Muslim world knew Aristotle. They didn't have Plato for whatever reason, but I guess that got lost and was later restored by I think in the Renaissance, really, but the you had people to you know focus on translation, right? And then you had people writing in Hebrew and translating into Arabic, and and you had a lot of translations back and forth. So, you know, books were copied by hand, right? So you might as well translate, right? If you do it, so there's a lot of translations out there of this stuff, but this is all like hand copied, right? So it was written in Arabic, translated to Greek first. And that's where we get the name. It's from the Greek Necronomicon. Um, and if we get a Latin translation in 1228, um, which is, again, an interesting time. It's, it's, this is, it's the 13th century is when we start to get like what we call the, I mean, like the Proto-Renaissance, where people start to become interested in these classical texts from the East, and the Arabs played a role, right? You have the Crusades, which allowed books to come to Europe from the Middle East, including many philosophical texts that get reverse translated or Greek texts that come back and people learn Greek in addition to Latin and translate them. That's all the whole humanist movement, right? It's all, the timeline is very correct here, I think, to, for, it, it's, it feels like it's from life. It feels it's believable. Um, so we get the, the oldest, wormiest translation. And these are real, some of these people mentioned are real people, right? For instance, the story of Abdul Hazarad was said we get from Ibn Kalakan, who was then a real biographer uh, who wrote in the 12th century, wrote books about um, 
the lives of the eminent people in the in the Muslim world. So eventually, though, this gets banned by the popes. Um, we get an English translation, uh, Dr. D, um, which is later, and that is printed, or that was never printed. Oh, but there is a printed copy, just but just a few copies. I said before there didn't seem to be a printed copy, but there is one. Uh, the Greek copy was printed in Italy sometime between 1500 and 1550. The English translation never copied, locked up in the British Museum. Uh, another, I guess, is this English copy? No, it's a Latin text. The Latin text is in the British Museum and Paris. Um, Widener and Miskatonic have a 17th century edition. It doesn't say what language. I think those are Eng I think they might be English. I I'm going to have to reference Dunwich Horror quickly. Give me a second. Yeah, I remember... Uh, I think it's coming back to me. Uh, he has to go to Miskatonic and then he tries to go to Widener for the Latin original, but the Watleys have like an old English translation, like a handwritten English translation that's missing pages. Um, but it's not good enough for the rituals because it's, it's kind of corrupted by the translation process. Uh, we even have a mention of Pikmin here. Uh, quote, a still vaguer rumor credits the preservation of a 16th century Greek text in the Salem family of Pikmin. Um, who disappeared, which is a direct reference to the events of Pikmin's model and Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath. So that's fun. Uh, we even get a mention to R.W. Chambers, who derived this, who got his idea for the King of Yellow from the Necronomicon. So there's some kind of world building here. And what's also fun about this is, of course, we know that Lovecraft came across Chambers later in his life, uh, reading these stories when he was researching supernatural horror and literature, right? And he became a fan of Chambers, at least part of his works, uh, while he was researching that book. And he, you know, gives a shout out to him here. So a lot going on in just a few short pages. In fact, you could listen to yourself in just four minutes, five minutes without listening to all the nonsense I've been saying about it. But I think there's a lot of fascinating aspects in this little, not even a story, just some, just a, a few notes, a little bit of a... Uh, a little bit of a Lovecraft concordance, if you will, um, that he can reference for, for things to... Because the Necronomicon is going to be mentioned a lot in his later stories. So that's one thing I wanted to talk about uh, in this episode. The next thing I want to talk about is, is the Descendants. Sorry, we should call it the, the Descendant. Um, now, this ties into um, something we see in, like, the Silver Key. We see it in... Um, the Roman dream. Uh, it's partially there in Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath. It's a little bit there, and especially, you no, know, strongly there in Case of Charles Extra Ward. Um, is this idea of like you inherit the sins of the father, right? Of course, that goes way back to even like Rats in the Wall and those types of, and Lurking Fear. But it's here, it's more of a direct connection in these, these stories from this time, a direct connection to that past through dreams and memory. And, and all that. Um, so the Descendant, again, it's a fragment. It's 1,500 words. It, it does, doesn't really work as a standalone story. If it was going to be a novel or a longer story, Lovecraft obviously never finished it. It's a little bit more put together than some other fragments we've looked at, like Azathoth. Um, so it does kind of stand alone. Uh, you can read it and get some meaning out of it as a, as a story. Um, 
So it's set in London, and we're told about this man who lives all by himself at, at an inn with his cat. Um, now he lives with a cat, so you might think, is this a Lovecraft stand-in? You don't. It doesn't seem to be so because this guy is kind of adult. Uh, he's kind of willfully ignorant. He reads idiotic novels that just distract him from the world. He has really no interest in deep thought. Um, and he doesn't have any friends or companions. He's just a bit of a weirdo, but a boring weirdo. Um, and now, like in a lot of his stories, it's like, like even in the vault, it's just like you start out saying like, this guy's afraid of this. Like in the cold air, this guy's afraid of the cold. I'm going to tell you why. In the vault, this guy's afraid of graveyards or, or the night. Or and I'll tell you why, right? Here, it's this guy's afraid of like any human contact or intellectual conversation or anything and i'm going to tell you why um now this is what we get quote it is a decade now since he moved into gray's inn and of where he had been he would say nothing until the night young williams brought the necronomicon so it's not the bringing of the necronomicon that that shocks him it's this event of him getting the necronomicon awakens the loosens his tongue to let him tell the story so the guy who brings him the Necronomicon, this Williams, was a dreamer. So this is sort of is a dreamland story, both because Williams is a dreamer, and we find out later on that our our weird old guy, who's Lord Northrum, he's a lord, uh, noble family line, uh, also dreams and also has connection to his ancestry through somehow his dreams or his memories. Um, now he gets this Necronomicon, and he needs like Northrum to help him like decipher. Di- di- dissect it and and understand it and he's like the one who has these abilities so William tries to get his neighbor to speak up about this and to help him out and it's well first I think he wants to just talk to him about stuff and Northrop rejects him but then finally he brings the Necronomicon um, quote he had known of the dreaded volume since the 16th year when his drawing love of the bazaar had led him to ask queer questions of a bent bookseller in Chando Street. He always wondered why men paled when they spoke of it. The old bookseller had told him that only five copies were known to have survived the shock edicts of the priests and lawgivers against it, and that all these were locked up with frightened care by custodians who had ventured to br- begin a reading by the hateful black letter. Um, so there's, But there's apparently still one copy available, and this guy has it. This guy, uh, And we get the backstory of how he finds it. He finds the Necronomicon. So he brings it with its twisted medieval Latin. So it's the Latin translation that Williams has. And he brings it to Northrop to, to help him read. And this like wakens up in Northrop his desire and ability to tell the story of his dreams, of his ancestral dreams. And so we get his ancestral dreams here. Uh, Northrop's ancestral dreams. And apparently his ancestors were Roman legionaries in Britain. This is very much reminds us of the Roman dream where Lovecraft is dreaming he has ancestress. And he suggests maybe this is true uh, in the letter. Maybe I just dreaming of my ancestors. It's an ancestral dream, just like we saw in the Silver Key. I don't really believe in this stuff, but it's not a coincidence that he's thinking about all this stuff at the same time. Um, you know, in case of Charles Extra Ward, same time. Um, dream Quest of Anon same time, which was all about Dreaming, not so much time in that case, but the silver key definitely is about this. Um, so anyways, he's 
his ancestor was a Roman Briton, right? And there's kind of this weird cultic stuff going on, cult underground traditions. Maybe we haven't talked enough about them since we looked at a few episodes ago, Call of Cthulhu. It's sort of there throughout Kadath too, I suppose. But we got like a real cult here. And again, it's, it's going to be in uh, the Roman dream. So uh, he had been summarily expelled from his command for participation in certain rites unconnected with any known religion. Gabinus had, the rumor ran, come inside a cliffsoft cavern where strange folks met together and made the elder sign in the dark strange folk whom the Britons knew not save in fear and who were the last to survive from a great land into the west that had sunk. Um, so that this guy's into some weird stuff. So this apparently these people were there for a long time and their old fort had like vanished into the sea or things. It, it goes way back. It's, it's like pre-Anglo-Saxon. It's like back to the Picts and, and others. And this cult, this group could never be obliterated by later generations. Like the Romans couldn't defeat it and later generations couldn't defeat this either. So it lives on. So it's just like, you know, something like the, the rats in the wall, right? Some weird tradition that's going back into the primordial past. So Northrop accesses this through his dreams. So he's having these ancestral dreams. But then he tells a story about why he's so weird and why he shuns knowledge and searching. He doesn't want to be a seeker anymore. And he says, like, he started having these dreams and he wanted to seek out truth about them. And he couldn't find it in religion or occult mysteries. He's very much like Randolph Carter in this way, that he failed in these earthly ways of getting to the truth. So instead of dreams, though, he... Uh, kind of starts seeking out things. Uh, quote, books like Ignatius Donnelly's chimerical account of Atlantis he absorbed with zest and a dozen obscure precursors of Charles Fort enthralled him with their vagaries. He would travel leagues to follow up a furtive village tale of a normal wonder and once went into the desert of Arbor Bay to seek a nameless city, a faint report which no man had ever beheld. End quote. Now we know that Abdullah Hazred beheld it, the narrator on the nameless city. Maybe this is the narrator of the nameless city. Who knows? Um, that'd be fun to, to think about. Now, what I want to say here about this is I really do think Lovecraft is trying to... I, I, I reject the idea of a, of a Cthulhu mythos that was something like Lovecraft's intention. And sometimes I kind of pass these connections off as saying, well, he's just like advertising other stories or he's just name dropping or fan servicing stuff. I think to some degree that's what's happening. But I also want to say that in these things we've been looking at lately, like the Silver Key which directly references the unnameable, directly references, uh, what's the other story? Uh, statement of Randolph Carter. So much so that you can almost put these Randolph Carter stories in an order if you want. You have the Dream Quest of Anakudath referencing all these Dreamland stories. You have here, you have the Nameless City coming up, the history of the Necronomicon, which we just talked about, it references the Nameless City. References Pikmin's model. He's putting, he's trying threading together something. He is trying to connect these different threads into a, if you want to call it a mythos, into some kind of shared world. Um, so at some level, it becomes more than just a little bit of advertising and actually a, a, a shared universe, right? The LCU. The, well, they're not, they're not movies, but the, the, the LLU, the Lovecraft Literary Universe. All right. 
25 minutes. So I'll just mention Ibid. I don't want to say too much about Ibid. It doesn't, you know, I guess there's some mention of race here. Yeah, there's a little bit of race. I might have to deal with Ibid a little bit more seriously. Um, now, Ibid is just kind of a jokey essay. It's it's actually pretty clever. It's the biography of the scholar Ibid, um, I-B-I-D. Now, of course, if you read footnotes, you've come across Ibid before. He's a very prolific writer, uh, writing in many different fields, right? Now, Ibid obviously is just means, you know, it's a copy of the footnote that came before. But if you don't know that, then you see Ibid appearing in every book you read. It's not hard to kind of have this, you know, who's this guy? And he writes a lot of books. Uh, and that's the joke in Ibid. So Lovecraft's trying to write a biography, essentially, of the scholar Ibid. Um, there's a lot of, like, really complex Roman names here. Because he kind of goes back to the origins of this word. I think it's rooted in the Latin. So it's not hard to do do that and you get some like pretty fascinating history here um there are racial components here i haven't talked about race in this episode too much yet because uh, it hasn't really come up but it does come up here a little bit quote um ibid was a romanized visigoth of atafu's horde who settled in Placentia around 410 a.d that contrary cannot be too strongly emphasized for von Schrillenkopf had since that time little wit and Benator have shown with irrefutable force that the striking isolated figure was a genuine Roman or at least as genuine a Roman as that degenerate and mongrelized age could produce of whom one might say with Gibbon of what Gibbon said of Boethius that he was the last whom Cato or Tully could have acknowledged for their countrymen. So some suggestion of, of race. Um, you kind of get a sh you kind of think a little bit about the the Dr. Johnson story Lovecraft wrote early in you know like we looked at that like fifty episodes ago, where you get a lot of name dropping and a lot of references of important people and events in history. That was just uh, the eighteenth century circle of of Johnson. This one you get kind of this. Uh, appearance of Ibid throughout history, right? Because, um, of course, he never dies out. So, yeah, I, at the end of the day, I don't want to say too much about this, except that that's fun to read and interesting that it appears at this point, but I, I just, just sort of want to mention it as something you may want to seek out. It's pretty humorous. If you read academic essays, it's, it's clear that Lovecraft is making fun of academic history and how it's written. And I think it's worthy of, of this scorn. But it also shows Lovecraft's erudition on history. I mean, he certainly knows it quite well. And he shows off a lot of that here, too. Um, so anyways, uh, next time, I'm very excited to tell you that I'm going to be starting to look at um, one of my favorite Lovecraft stories, The Case of Charles Dexter Ward, a novel, really. I'm going to spend probably five episodes. It's in five parts, so I'll just do one part per episode, one chapter per episode. Um, and I'll have a lot to say about it. I think it's one of his most important stories uh, looking at Atlantic history, which is sort of my thing. I, I think Atlantic history becomes such a important way to unlock Lovecraft's influence and the things that influenced him 
that you know it's there the maritime's there we saw it again and again in uh dream quest where the dreamlands almost are a, a the, the atlantic kind of is alive and well in the dreamlands in a way um with slavery and c- connections and you've got the anglo-american thing going on there so uh the atlantic is so strong but no story does atlantic history maybe quite as well um, as the case of Charles Dexter Ward in, you know, bringing in the American revolution. And it's so important because so much about Lovecraft is about forgetting and not remembering the past. And so many people in the new world, in the Americas are keen to forget their own past, whether it's the racial violence, slavery, genocide. And that's horror. That's a real horror. That's the horror. It's not supernatural horror. It's, it's a real horror that we can't forget. And and here's where really I, I differ with Lovecraft really strongly. I, I kind of stand with Stephen King. I think Stephen King always says we need to remember um, our past. And there's times where Lovecraft says remembering is good. I mean, The Silver Key is such an important text because it is it is not, it's saying, well, let's not forget. Let's, let's remember our past because it's got something to teach us. And I think Case of Charles Dexter Ward, it's all about forgetting. The hero of that story abolishes the past entirely. Um, and there's two attempts to abolish the past. The first fails, the second is successful. Um, but our villain is trying to remember the past and trying to restore it and, and catalog it. He's, he's a librarian. Um, so it's, it's an interesting story and there's going to be a lot to talk about in that so Kerwin as a librarian with a library um, the villain uh, the the hero as a someone trying to purge the past a censor if you will a censor of the truth anyways I'll get into that so I'll do that then I got another two of my favorite tales to look at after that uh, uh, the color out of space and the Dunwich horror so a lot of exciting episodes for me personally coming up so I hope you'll join me for these future episodes. Um, I hope you won't be intimidated by a five-part series on the case of Charles Dexter Ward, but I hope to prove by the end that it's worth it, that it's worth uh, talking about, at least for a couple hours. So I will see you um, in future episodes. Thanks, as always, for listening. Yeah, that's it for now. Thanks. Yeah.